Hey everyone, this is Free Food for Thought, a student-run, student-focused podcast, and I'm Vedan. And my name is Nathaniel, and today we're joined by Professor Daniel Dresner, uh, Professor of International Politics at the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy at Tufts University, and a non-resident senior fellow at the Chicago Council on Global Affairs. He's also the co-director of Fletcher's Russia and Eurasia program. Dresner has written several books, or seven actually, books, including The Ideas Industry and All Politics is Global, and edited three others, including The Uses and Abuses of Weaponized Interdependence. He's published articles in numerous scholarly journals, as well as in The New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Politico, and Foreign Affairs, and has been a regular contributor to Foreign Policy and The Washington Post. Professor Dresner, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. So I'd like to start just by asking you a bit about your background. I did a bit of internet sleuthing and found on um, the, on the Wayback Machine, um, I think it was one of your like your first websites um, had had a bit of your bio on there. Uh, and one point on it was just um, you mentioned that you lived in seven seven different different places in ten years. Yeah, growing up, um, that's quite a lot. I just wanted to get some <laughs> yes. some. Um, info on that. Like, where were you? Why were you moving around so much? If you're okay with sharing that. No, no problem. Um, it, it wasn't exactly my choice. I was very young at the time. Uh, I was born in Syracuse, New York. Um, my father was in med school and he graduated, which meant he then had to go on for uh, internship and then residency. So we moved to Philadelphia and then we moved to a suburb of Hartford. And then he spent a summer in uh, – we spent a summer in Rochester because he had a fellowship there. Then we moved to Dayton, Ohio because he served two years in the Air Force. Uh, then we moved to Toronto, Canada for a year because he had a postdoc fellowship there. And then we moved finally um, back to Avon, Connecticut uh, where he finally set up practice. Uh, he was joined a medical practice. So I don't know how many that was. Maybe I exaggerated. But by the time – that all happened by the time I was 10. And so just another question about that time growing up as well. Um, how do you say your your upbringing, whether it's like living in those those different places, how did it influence your path up to the point that, that you're in today? Um, that's an interesting question. No one's ever actually asked me that. Uh, I suppose I would have to say that one of the things about moving every two or three years is you have to learn how to roll with the punches a little bit. You have to constantly adjust and, and – you know, it also makes you more of an observer because you realize you've grown up in different places and those places are not necessarily the same as each other. So maybe there's a way in which that sort of laid me down the path towards becoming a social scientist. Um, and also you have to learn to at least try to make friends wherever you go. Um, and that's not – it's easier when you're young but it's still a, a hard thing to do to make friends and then be told, well, we're moving so you got to do this all over again. Um and I was very glad when we stopped moving and I, I confess that uh, when – I've had kids and we moved once when they were very young and we didn't move after that. And that might have been in part a reaction to my upbringing. That's super cool and I kind of empathize with that because I like grew up in – I mean I like spent time with like five different schools. Um, so like I, I like understand this people fascination that you like grew up with because being an observer of so many different like climates and types of people, uh, I'm sure that's like part of what drew you to being a social scientist. I have to think there was probably some element of it. Yeah, I mean, you 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 become a people watcher. You become you know you 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 observe how other human beings behave. And in some ways, that's yeah, that's the the for any social scientist, whether it's an economist or political scientist or a sociologist, what you're basically trying to figure out is why do people behave the way they do when they don't necessarily have to. 
Yeah, and what would you say, like, in that regard is, is your most, like, unusual finding or, like, unintuitive finding? My most unintuitive finding? Um, you know, based on firsthand observation, you mean? I... Or even, like, secondhand research-based. Oh. Um... That sometimes you coerce the ones you love. <laughs> I mean, in some ways, the the argument I made in my book about sanctions, the sanctions paradox, says that economic coercion is more likely to work on allies than adversaries, um, which at the time was somewhat counterintuitive because the paradox is that states are usually much more eager to sanction their adversaries. But as it turns out, very often if you can, you will see – States decide to coerce close allies and actually get a lot as a result of it. And it's disturbing at times the ways in which I've seen that in personal relationships, not necessarily mine but others. Um, and so I haven't ever articulated that connection but I'm aware of it. That's so interesting. Do you think um, – how would you describe like the nature of allies on a global level, like say like two countries and would you say that's like – analogous to like two people just being friends? I mean it can be. The way I sort of thought about it in terms of the book is expectations of future conflict. So if you're a state and you're allied with another state, do you anticipate – sorry. Do you anticipate that in the future you will have frequent conflicts or do you anticipate that, well, no, we actually see the world roughly in a similar way. So we're probably going to be pretty like-minded in terms of things that crop up. Um, and if you feel that you have a like-minded approach, then it might be that, that the actor that engages in coercion in the first place never saw a scenario where that would actually happen. Um, it has to sort of have to come up naturally. Whereas on the other hand, if you're dealing with an adversary, by definition, the two of you are expecting to butt heads frequently. And so if you do that, yeah, you're going to try to coerce them, but they're also going to be prepared for it and they're also not going to want to give in because they know that if they give in now, they're going to be dealing with another conflict down the road. And if you give in in the present, you set up a situation where you might be expected to give in in the future. Uh -huh. um, and like building on from that, do you think like what you described is significantly in influenced by just the interpersonal relationships of like authorities and countries or is that like a smaller factor with like all the cogs of the machine? No, it's a smaller factor for what I do. I mean this is about states as actors rather than, than individual leaders. Um, you can argue that maybe there are instances in which if leaders have been in power for quite some time and expect to be in power for, for quite a long time, you know, maybe they have a relationship with another leader that that is more unique. So for example, I've seen it read and I, I have no reason to doubt this, that the relationship between let's say Vladimir Putin and Recep Erdogan from Turkey is kind of unique and if there's another Turkish leader, relations might actually take a different turn. So you know, this is speaking more about my field. There's, there's research that talks about the way that interpersonal relationships can matter in world politics. For the stuff on sanctions that I've done, that's not really an important variable. Going a bit back to background again, but also because I don't want to fully go back to background because now we are getting into globalization. Um, I'm curious, um, what sort of, of media surrounding like politics, government, global power influenced you growing up? And how would you say it's perhaps changed over time? <laughs> So, you know, I'm old enough so that I was – I came of age in a period where there were a lot of editorial gatekeepers. There weren't a lot of, of outlets that would talk about international politics. Um, this is something I talk about actually in my book, The Ideas Industry. But you're talking about someone who for me 
you know, when I was in high school, it was the Sunday New York Times reading, you know, the opinion section or reading the international section that, that I would pay attention to. Um, and it's not like there were a lot of other, you know, sources of information out there. Um, in fact, I remember when I went to college, I spent my junior year abroad in London and it was sort of striking to have that many different newspapers um, having that much international coverage. It was sort of surprising relative to being an American, you know, growing up on the Hartford Current mostly, which was my local paper. But then, you know, even the New York Times, sometimes the uh, the international coverage was uh, was insubstantial. Um, the thing that has changed now, obviously, is the gatekeepers are gone. Um, I mean, the New York Times still exists and the Guardian and the London Times still exist, but you're we're drowning in uh, – in news sources. The, the problem is we have a reverse problem. It, it, back in the day, if the New York Times published something, you were reasonably confident that this had to be an important story because they had limited space and so if they chose to publish something, it probably mattered. The question now is, is you know, if you read something, how do you judge its veracity? Um, you know, there are still institutional brands that matter out there. But there are a lot of different sources. There are people on their own substacks. There are podcasts. There are, you know, magazines that you know you might have heard of, but magazines that you might not. And, and sometimes it's tough to assess the, for lack of a way of putting it, the nutritional value of what you're reading. And that 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 puts a greater onus on the reader to figure out, well, okay, is this something that's legitimately new and interesting, or is it just some guy rambling in his basement? Mm -hmm. Yeah, because I'm I'm curious as well as uh, your thoughts on like opinion pieces, um, knowing that you've written quite many, um, because I think like, I mean I I'm quite inclined to read like New York Times opinion pieces because they're usually like interesting and because um, I am a basic New York Times New York Times reader, um, they often appeal to me. Um, but kind of the sense of like it's still going through some sort of process in which it's being curated and displayed. Um, it's being edited. Edited as well, yeah. Yeah. Um, so what would you say the role of like opinion pieces um, continues to be today? I think it's – that's a really tough question because I think it's evolved over time. And, and one of the concerns that seems manifest is that Sometimes ordinary readers have difficulty distinguishing between opinion pieces and straight news coverage, um, not realizing that if you publish something on, let's say, the Washington Post op-ed page, that's a different standard than if you publish – than if you're a reporter who writes a, a reported news story. And the truth is, is that while op-eds are edited, they're not always rigorously fact-checked. And so there are sometimes reasons to be suspicious for – some of these op-eds. And we've all seen op-eds that were published and like made a big hullabaloo and it turns out, well, they were based on, you know, tenuous data, let's say, or a sort of first-person anecdote that you then wildly overgeneralize or what have you. Um, you know, it, it's it's a challenging thing, I think, particularly for younger generations of readers, because you have to be your own referee in terms of dealing with this. And everyone should critically engage with whatever they're reading, but Trying to critically engage with whether someone is stating a fact that's actually true or not is that much harder than assuming, OK, I'm assuming the editor like wouldn't publish this unless it was accurate. So I'm just going to take what is stated as face value. How – what does this mean? Does this change my opinion? And so I think in some ways today's readers have to do more work in terms of vetting what they read than I did when I was your age. 
Right. I mean, that's like uh, the perfect segue into something we were just discussing before this, um, which is like blogs, but like yeah. more at large, um, like the, the advent of social media, um, mm-hmm. Twitter, Instagram, Reddit, and yeah. whether you think um, these things have like generally enlightened the public relative to like when you were growing up. And my like personal stance is it's kind of led to a lot of groupthink. While I appreciate like the variety of content, I feel like as humans, we have this tendency to succumb to groupthink. Mm-hmm. So again, just to date myself, when I was your age, these did not exist. There were no blogs. There was no social media. There was no World Wide Web even. Um, you know, it was just coming on. I was considered very uh, cutting edge because I actually had an email address when I was in college. Um, that was not the norm back in the day. Um, I have a mixed – I think that the issue is is that um, – to paraphrase one of my old colleagues, Alex Went, social media and blogs are what you make of them. Um, I think – you know, curated properly, they offer an additional point of view and offer an additional perspective on the way that the news is actually reported and provide a critical lens on that. So just to give to one example, even in terms of, of, you know, Twitter now, when the war in Ukraine broke out a year ago, I, who's someone who's an international relations expert, had never heard of Michael Kaufman, um, who is a, a military analyst of the Russian military for CNA. I very quickly you know, through social media, discovered him and realized the quality of his analysis was really top-notch and feel like I really gained something by reading what he was saying. And while he occasionally writes for The New York Times and occasionally writes for other outlets, he also has his own Twitter feed and, you know, has his own podcast at War on the Rocks. And so that's someone who I think in a pre-social media, pre-podcast world, he would have written the occasional op-ed but wouldn't necessarily have had more content. Now, we do and I feel like I prosper from it. The problem is is that for every Michael Kaufman, there might be three people who know nothing about the area or think they know a lot but actually don't know much. But because they're good bomb throwers and because they are provocateurs, might capture much more attention. Um, and so that's a bit of a problem. Yeah, and I think the issue also lies in the fact that there are like less people like you who are good at discerning uh, quality content from just provocative content. That's possible. So as a Gen Xer, I always feel like, and this is a generational arrogance thing, we always feel like our generation got it right because we grew up in a pre-internet age, which meant we actually had to read things for a long period of time. And then we also presumably profit off the internet because we can separate the wheat from the chaff. Whereas millennials and Gen Z have a harder challenge there because they didn't necessarily develop the critical faculties pre-internet to know how can I tell if this is a quality or this is not? Um, which I recognize sounds a touch patronizing, but I also think contains a mild grain of truth to it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no attention spans and everything. I'd <laughs> yeah, you were you were you were clearly distracted even as I was speaking. No, I'm just kidding. You were not. Uh, you were paying very rapt attention. Thank you for that. Thinking about your ath talk tonight as well, um, the topic uh, rest in peace globalization. Um, I'm curious, why is it that um, it seemingly your your talk is discussing why like um, the consensus the consensus has been that globalization has already been dying, but you're saying like it is just now starting to die. Yeah. Why why is that the case? What has changed? So for the long time, for the last like five, six, seven years, maybe even fifteen, if you go back to the two thousand eight financial crisis, there have been a lot of people saying, "Up, oh, that's it, globalization is over," and. There's that tricky problem of if you look at the data, that's not the case. You know, if you look at any sort of index of of globalization, you know, the DHL index, you know, 
World uh, Economic Forum, um, Swiss Economic Institute, just raw data in terms of trade as a percentage of GDP. The truth is, is that what you could say was that maybe the pace of globalization had tapered a little bit until the last couple of years. And now you're starting to see a retreat. Um, and the real concern I have is that you can chalk up that retreat in part to some truly unique events like the pandemic, um, for example. But I wrote a book in 2014 called The System Worked, arguing that in fact the international system's response to the 2008 financial crisis um, was better than expected. Uh, I'm Jewish and so the, the title I always – the informal title I always use for that book of was uh, it could have been so much worse. Um, and the problem is, is that the analysis I offered in that book for why the system worked, if I apply it now, I come away with a radically different conclusion that none of the sort of drivers that led to a sustained global economy even in 2014, even a decade ago are nearly as powerful now as they were then. And so to be clear, if you actually think of sort of a snapshot of right now in terms of globalization, it's still a pretty globalized economy out there, more globalized than it was you know, 30 years ago, probably more globalized than it was 20 years ago. But it's less globalized than it was a decade ago and there are so many reasons to believe that the direction, the trend line is going to move against this and there are very few forces sort of pushing for even greater openness. And so that's a – that's a sobering fact for you know for your generation. You grew up during a time when globalization was just a fact of life. It was a constant. Um, I remember at least some period in my life when that was not necessarily the case, and you know to it reminds me of uh, something John Maynard Keynes wrote uh, in the book that he wrote, The Economic Consequences of the Peace, about the aftermath of World War One, where he sort of waxes nostalgic about what life was like pre World War One in Great Britain, where you said a man could London from just you know could just get on a phone and call and order anything and it would be delivered by the end of the day, which sounds weirdly like the 21st century in some ways. Um, but I'm worried we're moving in a direction where that's no longer going to be the case. Huh. And um, that's interesting, this like concept of economic globalization because we have we have like the globalization of economies. We have political glo globalization, which I feel like is also trending in like a nationalistic yeah. direction recently. Um, but we also have this like cultural globalization, mm -hmm. which I feel like is the bedrock of it all because it applies to every single person. And I feel like this cultural globalization is like almost irreversible. We like listen to the same music. We like have the same ideas, the same lingo, English being a big part of that. Um, mm. And yeah, I wonder like how that factors in because I feel like that tension will be inevitable. I guess I would push back a little bit on this in the sense of I think economic globalization preceded social globalization or to put it another way, you can't have everyone listening to the same music unless it's technologically possible for everyone to listen to the same music. Um, so I, I think if there's anything that we should – you know, showing some – to show some epistemic humility, humility my concern is that you know, what you just said about like everyone listening to the same thing you sort of take it granted as an axiom. And by the way, I hope you continue to be correct. But if you would ask me 10 years ago, you know, will the world move sharply towards economic closure, I would have been suspicious. I would have been like, no, because everyone doing that, it, it winds up being a lose-lose outcome. And yet that's the direction we're moving. And in the same way, it, it, I think there's a danger in taking things for granted 
that exists now, assuming they will continue to exist in the same way going forward. Right. But with something as decentralized as the internet, do you think it can be prevented? Absolutely. People don't realize how easy it'll be to segment the internet. Um, you're seeing, you know, China already does it in terms of the Great Firewall. Russia's doing it now. The Saudis are very good at doing it. Um, if there is a you know, a, a greater conflict, you're going to see undersea cable sabotaged. You're going to see the sort of, you know, hard plumbing of the internet um, seriously affected. Now, if you're in the United States, it doesn't mean necessarily you're going to be all that affected, but it does mean that you can see segmentation between sort of different spheres of the globe um, in a way that we would have thought would would not have been possible 10 years ago. I didn't even consider that possibility. So it's like entertaining to think about, but like simultaneously a bit um, distressing. Yeah, horrifying is the word I would use. Um, and by the way, I, saying that this could happen doesn't mean it will happen. But I think we're now – the problem is, is we're operating in a world where there are many things that we previously thought that were unthinkable that have become conceivable. We didn't think there was going to be a global pandemic that forced an awful lot of people to not leave their houses for you know essentially for two years. Um, that happened. So the more the inconceivable becomes conceivable, the more it becomes possible. Unfortunately, that is just about all the time we have today. Um, do you have one more quick question to ask you? Oh, good, because that was a downer. <laughs> yeah. way to end uh, we'll, we'll try to end on a lighter note. Yeah, um, okay. We're just curious if you have any current um, media, book recommendations, anything you're currently enjoying. Oh, um, okay. I'm a huge fan of Andor. Um, you know, the, the show on Disney, the, the sort of Star Wars, um, you know, you're not familiar with this. I'm not familiar. With oh, that. my. Okay. So did you hear, have you ever seen Rogue One? I've heard of it. I've not seen it. Okay. Um, basically, as someone who's a political scientist, the way I would describe it is that it's actually Star Wars for adults. So it's set between the prequel trilogy and about five years before Star, the original Star Wars film. And basically asks, how do you create a rebellion? Um, and I really enjoy that. Um, I'm also enjoying The Last of Us, actually. Uh, you know, I mean, I did write a book about called Theories of International Politics and Zombies, and no matter how much The Last of Us's creators want to deny it, it's a zombie show. So it's always interesting to see the sort of variations that uh, that you see on that. So those two, and also um, Abbott Elementary. I'm a huge fan of. Yeah, I, I have heard a lot of good things about that as well. It's actually quite good, and it it. It does something which is remarkable, which is it talks about the difficulties that inner city schools face, but it does so without being patronizing and without being depressing. That's not an easy thing to pull off. Uh, the Last of Us is like my favorite uh, video game narrative, so I'd like love to keep discussing that. But as he said, that's unfortunately all the time we have today. Um, but to all our viewers out there, remember to stay hungry. <laughs> <laughs>